Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by a, a few friends. Uh, I've got Chris Dorides and Marissa DiNatale, my two co-hosts. Hi, guys. Hey, Mark. Hey, Mark. You're getting ready like for I Christmas? like I every day. Uh, that's true. We've been, uh, we've been doing a lot of stuff recently, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah, we Webinars haven't asked me anything. And ask me anything. Yeah. Ask me anything uh, for the Survey of Business Confidence. Uh, right. Yeah. Well, you want to explain to people what that is? Uh, sure. I think we've talked about it. On the... a, you can advertise. This is a good good point to advertise a little bit. Oh, okay. All right. Not selling so what anything, is it? though. It's uh, So I think we've talked about it on the podcast. You're, no, what are you, you're always selling. Chris is always Marissa, isn't Chris always selling? He's like <laughs> we're all always selling. What are you talking I, to me? Talk we're all, about, yeah. all of us are selling all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So, uh, so did you, you want to describe the survey business confidence? Just advertise that for a minute. Sure. So it's a Moody's Analytics Survey Business Confidence. It's a weekly survey that goes out to anyone who'd like to to join. So that's the advertising part. If you're interested, you can uh, go to economy.com and you'll see a link to our our survey. Uh, we ask 10 questions about the the state of, of business, of your business as a respondent uh, specifically. So questions about your confidence over the next six months, uh, information about hiring, pricing, uh, a lot of different questions. Uh, the survey's been going on for what twenty years now? I think two thousand three is when you started. Yeah, it, exactly. Mark? Almost on the nose, I think. Two twenty years. Yeah, yeah. So it gives us a lot of yeah. great information. It's very timely because it's weekly, and uh, if you participate, the ben the benefits include you get, of course, a, a summary of the survey every week and what's going on, and then you get a, a invited to an Ask Me Anything uh, event periodically with uh, with Mark. So. That's the uh, and you and you you and me and me and you yeah right and we had Dante on as well yeah. so that was good it's very good good well I'm did you I get just, any uh, did you get any interesting questions on that that you want to share uh, anyone have any off the wall questions no they were all kind of in the strike zone sorta maybe one curve but they you know even that landed in the strike zone so yeah I, I don't think anything no. Uh, kind of AI and credit quality and labor market, you know, kind of the uh, traditional questions that we get here on the podcast. So mm -hmm. no, interest rates, yeah. lots of questions. A lot, lot of on interest rates, which maybe this is time to move forward and introduce Mike Strain. Hey, Mike, how are you? I am wonderful. I am wonderful. And I'm happy to be back on this. Excellent yeah, it's podcast. good to have you back. It's good to have you back. And, uh, uh, just uh, for folks out there, Mike is the Arthur Burns Scholar at AEI, American Enterprise Institute, and you run the Economic Studies Group there. So, uh, and Mike, when were you on last? Do you remember? It was about a year ago, or yeah, it so was about a year ago. I don't remember precisely when, but it was in that, yeah. in that kind of one year ago ballpark. Kind of in the depth of the pe pessimism around the economy, I think. <laughs> yes, that's, that's when the consensus was dark, pretty dark. Well, I remember the discussion uh, uh, where I was. Uh, quite pessimistic. And Mark, you were uh, much, much more optimistic. And events have proven you uh, right and have proven me wrong. Uh, I uh, I will now play the optimist and I will say, you may have won the battle, but I may yet still win the war. <laughs> oh, cool. I can't wait to dig into that. And, and I really appreciate that, Mike. That was very kind of you to say, you, you know, particularly because Chris has yet to capitulate. You know, he's, he's still hanging on. He's still hanging on. Uh, Ideal improbabilities, Mark. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it just this is a little bit inside baseball. 
but everyone who listened to the podcast and maybe Mike, when you were on last, Ryan Sweet was on the podcast. He has left and gone on to do other things. But I just got a tweet from him saying, hey, Mark, you were right. So even <laughs> Ryan Sweet has capitulated, Chris. What's that? No, Chris is Chris is making a deep metaphysical point that is accurate. And that is, if you if you uh, use probabilistic reasoning, then you can never be wrong. Exactly. But you can also never be right. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. Good point. Good point. And I do want to bring in uh, one of our other colleagues, Matt, Matt Colyar. Good to see you, Matt. It's been been a while. Hey, Mark. Great to see you, too. Yeah, congratulations. You have a newborn. That's right. Thank you very much. That's why I'm in the office as I uh, look for a little bit of uh, serenity, I guess. Quiet. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. you, you, I'll have to say you do look like a father. I, I, you I tired. Look like a father. tired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. You look it's like a little... father. <laughs> well, it's good to have yeah. you on board and, uh, Great to be here. and uh, uh, good to have you back on the Inside Economics. So uh, top of mind. Uh, here we are. This is uh, Thursday, December 14th. We're uh, uh, taping a little bit earlier than we typically do, but good day to do it because yesterday the Federal Reserve met, uh, the FOMC met, and wow, uh, I thought that was going to be a quiet, nondescript, nothing's going to happen meeting. What, Mike, what happened? I mean, how do you characterize what, what's going on here and in, in what the Fed's thinking? Well, I- let me let me answer in 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 two different ways. I mean, I think uh, um, you know the Fed uh, uh, is a victim of a many many year push toward greater and greater transparency, uh, and has uh, you know reached a level of transparency uh, that seems to me manifestly counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the dot plot. The press conferences, all this stuff. If you're gonna, if you're gonna do, if you're gonna do those things, uh, uh, and if you, you know, do what the Fed did yesterday, which was signal seventy-five basis points of cuts uh, in uh, the coming year, uh, and more after that, you know, then you're gonna, you're gonna end up uh, uh, with bond yields falling. You're gonna end up with stock prices rising. Why do I say that's counterproductive? It's counterproductive because uh, financial conditions, which ultimately is what the Fed targets, eased much more than the Fed would like. Uh, there is, uh, as a consequence of all this transparency yesterday, uh, a heightened risk that the economy will reaccelerate like it did in the third quarter a heightened risk that inflation will become more uh, entrenched uh, and therefore a heightened risk that um, the Fed will not be able to do what uh, uh, Chairman Powell seems to want to do, which is to which is to stop raising rates. Um, uh, you know, we saw the Fed kind of being a victim to transparency earlier in this cycle uh, when it uh delayed and delayed and delayed tightening uh, when it continued to purchase mortgage-backed securities at a time when home prices were growing at 20% annual rate month after month after month uh, because it had, you know, pre-committed to a path and it didn't want to deviate from from that path. And so, you know, the, the, the kind of simple answer is the Fed, you know, told the markets that uh, uh, it was done and that in the uh, cuts were on the way and markets reacted. 
I think the deeper answer is that the Fed has uh, uh, gone way too far in the direction of transparency and that that is risking its ability to uh, manage the business cycle and and really risking its credibility. Hmm. So just to take a uh, one step back uh, for folks that don't follow it like you and I do and everybody else in, on this podcast does, uh, if you go back one meeting ago, I think in September, the chairman was in the committee was still saying high probability or a reasonable probability of a rate, another rate increase. In fact, in the dot plot that you mentioned, which is where the members express their forecast for the funds rate, there was another rate increase in 2023. And then it was, uh, I, I can't remember, maybe there was, was there one or two rate cuts in 24, something like that. Yeah, one but, or two. Yeah, but at this meeting in the dot plot they released yesterday, no rate, more rate increases this year, obviously, because the year is now over. They're not going to do that. And then next year, three 25 basis point, quarter point rate cuts. And uh, that seems like a what you're saying, that's that's a, a that feels like a pretty big swing. Uh, and because it's a very clear swing, the markets are off and running here. Stock, the Dow hit 37,000. We've got bond yields below 4% on a 10-year treasury. And uh, financial conditions ease, and that may by itself uh, create a problem for the Fed if the economy gets rejuiced and inflation starts to pick up again. Now, you know, the Fed knows this. I mean, what were they were they thinking that markets wouldn't react this way, or you know, kind of, you know, they're well attuned to market perceptions and what investors are thinking. Do you think they're surprised by the market reaction or are they saying, well, that's fine. It's okay. It's consistent with getting inflation back down to target and this isn't going to forestall, you know, what we're trying to achieve here. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I I would be surprised if they were surprised. Um, I think that they, uh, you know, may have been concerned that if they you know, change the language in the statement from additional tightening to any additional tightening. Uh, they might be concerned that if they uh, switch the dot plot from showing an increase uh, uh, next year to, to instead showing uh, three cuts, that the market might do this. Um, what are their choices? Their choices are to uh, completely throw out their entire transparency and communication strategy. Mm. You know, that, that would not have provoked a positive reaction in in in, in the markets mm -hmm. uh and and it would have been an unpredictable uh negative reaction um their other choice is to you know not say what they think <laughs> which is uh mm -hmm. a very bad strategy for trying to preserve long-term credibility and so you know i think that they looked at uh, a lot of the data that has come out uh since the previous meeting that has altered their view of the appropriate course of monetary policy. And then they're kind of in a bind where, you know, mm -hmm. given their commitment to transparency, given press conferences, given dot plots, given forward guidance, mm -hmm. given all this stuff, they kind of have to say what they think. And, and, you know, how concerned are they? I, I don't, I don't know, but I would imagine mm -hmm. there's concern. For sure. I mean, if the, you know, as you mentioned, the 10 year treasury, I don't know what it's doing at precisely this moment, but it's uh, below know, four. Yeah. Earlier below today, four. it was below four. And, mm -hmm. and that's not where I think they want it to be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so 
uh, here we are. They've been increasingly more transparent since uh, Alan Greenspan, when he was chair, started this process towards transparency. I mean, when I started as an economist way back in the day, they wouldn't even tell us if they changed the fund rate. We had to figure that out by looking at what was going on in the marketplace, which wasn't yeah, easy yeah, yeah, You had to back it out by looking at changes in the money supply. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, so talk about the sea change in transparency. People used to what look at, at Chairman Greenspan's briefcase. And yeah. Say, well, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, I forgot that. One color, yeah. one, one color necktie is, is, yeah. is, <laughs> right. is Dr. Greenspan wearing. Right. Talk about reading the Politburo. So that, may have been, that may have been too opaque. I'm wearing the middle, you know, but now we, I mean, now, you know, the, the, the chairman gets up there. Well, we're thinking about thinking about this and, you know, we're, you know, talking about whether to think about talking about this and, 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 you know, dot plots and, you know, you know, is the chairman's dot the median dot? Which dot is the chairman's dot? You know, can the can the chairman's dot just come and like pound the other dots? And, <laughs> you know, I mean, these are like literal discussions that are taking place by people, you know, trying to invest money, and and that you know that seems like we've swung a little too far in the other direction. Okay, but here we are. Uh, here we are. <laughs> what would you do? I mean, if you were because you know the Fed changes its policy framework every so often, uh, you know, and it can change things again. What would you have them do here in terms of transparency? Well, I uh, oh, in terms of transparency, I would. Yeah, I, would, I mean, I would. I would walk a lot of this back. You would no dot yeah. plots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I would walk that stuff. back. I mean, I think. Yeah. I think they should be. I think they should be. You know, communicating their uh, target yeah. funds rate. I think uh, they should be obviously, you know, appearing before congressional committees when asked to do so. I think. You know, putting some press conferences on top of that is is a reasonable thing to do. Um, but I think I think forward guidance, uh, uh, you know, was was useful following the financial crisis of two thousand eight. I think it's been uh, uh, more harmful than helpful uh, in this kind of pandemic era business cycle. Um, again, locking the Fed into a schedule for for quantitative easing, quantitative tightening transitions. Uh, I think the dot plots are too much. I think there are too many press conferences. Um, mm. and, and yes, I would walk. I, so I, I would I would walk uh, some of that back. You got to do it carefully. Um, mm. And, you know, there's no reason to act like there's an emergency and, you know, mm. you know affect that change uh, with little notice. But, you know, I think I think I think I think the Fed could say we uh, adopted a number of uh, you know, pretty extraordinary communications strategies and 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 transparency efforts following the 2008 financial crisis, and you know that episode lasted a long time, and then we rolled into a pandemic, and you know we we're gonna you know we we've got both of those in the rearview mirror, and we're gonna normalize a little bit. Hmm. You know what surprised me a little bit was you know one way the chair could chair Powell could have. Uh, influence the market reaction to this pretty sizable change in the forecast for the funds rate. The I'm going to raise rates to I'm going to cut them three times next year would be in the press conference. And I, you know, I, I didn't get a chance to listen to it completely, but I didn't get the sense that he was trying to walk that back or shade it or you know, hey, say hey, guys, don't read too much into it. You didn't get any of that, which was yeah, surprising no. to me. Yeah, and yeah. that and that and that and that now uh, Mark leads leads uh, this group on this podcast to try and figure out which dot is the chairman's dot. 
Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> good point. Good point. But uh, Chris, let me turn to you real quick. Um, <clears throat> what do you think of that uh, assessment? I mean, how do you interpret what happened yesterday in the Fed's decision and what it means? Yeah, I agree with you. I, it seems as though the chairman just let it let it be, and then you know, kind right. of fed the fuel, uh, if you will, for the uh, the market rally that we had. Uh, I do agree with the. I see limited value in the dot plots. I'm actually surprised that the market put so much stock in that they haven't been terribly predictive, right? So I don't know how much value we get. They may just add more confusion, as Michael's saying, than than anything. I do like the press conferences, though. To be honest, mm. that. Uh, I, I think some ability to question and have a little bit more um, transparency than than what we had in, in the past is good. But uh, yeah, I think uh, some middle ground here, uh, perhaps, is what we need. Yeah, the weird thing is, if you look at the market forecast for the funds right now, they're pricing three rate cuts and then some. I think the Four futures the, yeah. are six, six, six rate cuts next year, I think. So- it, the market has taken what the Fed, pardon me. Oh, I'm sorry. The market, yes, that that's right. There the are market, six rate cuts. Right? Yes, there's yeah. six rate cuts. Right. I mean, that's very yeah. aggressive kind of rate cutting. Uh, I mean, that's almost like you, you got. It feels like you almost have to have a recession. You're back. We're back to that. You need a recession to get. It feels like, but I don't think they're forecasting. I don't think investors are forecasting recession. Do you? Well, I was. I was wondering about exactly the same thing. I mean, if we had if we had recorded this conversation. Uh, three days ago, um, I would have offered as a hypothesis for the divergence between market expectations and and the Fed's higher for longer strategy uh, that the market thought there was going to be a recession. Um, you know, maybe, maybe not, but that's at least a, a, a plausible theory that fits the facts. I was I was uh, very interested, as, as it turns out uh, you all were this morning, to see that the market thinks that we're going to have a federal funds rate 12 months from now with a three handle right. and you know i don't know i mean i think you got to ask you know yeah. do they you know does the market think there's going to be a recession i think you've got to ask that question because that is that is a aggressive pace of rate cuts in an election yeah, I, year right yeah. <laughs> just yeah well i always go back to this uh, kind of perplexing situation where not it, the recession signals in the bond market depend on what bond market you're looking at. I mean, I mean, like if I go look at the corporate bond market and I look at the yield on junk corporate debt, so below investment grade companies and their the interest rate on that debt compared to treasury, that difference, that spread, is a kind of a measure of investor angst that they're not going to get repaid by uh, by businesses because of some problem in in the economy and, and which will impair cash flow, the spreads are narrow. They're, they're, you get no indication there that investors are at all worried about recession. So it feels like to me there's something else going on here. It's not it's not a recession signal. It's maybe it's liquidity. Uh, you know, I just don't know. Usually usually when I can't explain something, it, it means it's going to get revised or there's a liquidity or a technical issue or some other thing that's going on. It just feels really odd to me. It doesn't like it's hard for me to connect the dots back to and, and the other thing is would the stock market rally 500 points if the investors were singing, singing thinking recession that you know this doesn't doesn't square right so it doesn't feel like that's what they're saying there's something else is going on here i just can't 
just can't put my finger on it. I, can't I mean, it could explain. be the divergence in uh, inflation forecasts. You know, it could be that yeah, it's think that the Fed. Uh, I'm sorry, it could be that markets think that inflation is going to uh, fall much more rapidly than than the Fed thinks it will. Um, you know, I did a, I have a, the kind of Taylor rule model that I that I use mm-hmm. that uh, does a terrible job with the 1990s and 2000s, but does a great job with the 1970s. And so that's why I've been using it for the last few years. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it's, you know, right. to, it's forward looking. And that predicted, uh, that model predicted, you know, before the the meeting, I, I ran it last week, that model, that model predicted a, a funds rate in the threes. Um, just kind of given, oh, really? oh, yeah, yeah, given, yeah. given SPF, survey professional forecasters, forecasts yeah. of core PC inflation, CBO forecasts, of core PC inflation, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing fancy. Um, and so, and so that I think is, uh, is one potential explanation, you know, another potential explanation, uh, uh, which I think is quite plausible is that the market doesn't believe the fed is committed to 2%. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the market thinks that, uh, you know, I don't know what the magic number is. Maybe it's two point nine four percent because that mm-hmm. rounds down to two point nine. <laughs> you know, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe that's maybe that's what maybe maybe the market thinks that's what the Fed oh, uh, is targeting. Um, when I tinkered with my uh, with my uh, uh, forecasting model and changed the target for, I'd been using two point two five percent as the target. When I changed it to two point seven five, you know, now I'm down in the low threes. Um, right. And, oh, uh, you know, that's I think that's, I think, another 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 potential explanation. You know, I think I think at the end of the day, you know, there are a number of members of the FOMC who who, you know, for very good reasons. And this is not a criticism of them, but they really want the unemployment rate in the threes. And they've been, they were very excited uh, about how that was able to happen uh, in the years prior to the pandemic. And you know, I think they're less concerned about a 2.7% core PCE uh, than um, than previous Feds uh, would have been, and you know, and so it could be it could be that investors are kind of reading the reading the situation that way as well. That's a great point. I hadn't thought of that. In fact, if you look, if I recall, if you look at the uh, in addition to the dot plots, the Fed releases their forecast for a number of different economic indicators, including inflation. And if you look at the core consumer expenditure flare, which is what they target, that's the 2% inflation target. I don't think they get back to 2%. Correct me if I'm wrong, someone, but I don't think they get back to 2% until like 2027 or 26 at the end of the forecast horizon. Between now and then, it's a, it's a, it's well above two. It's like, you know, two and a quarter or something like that, you know, even even higher than that. So it feels like even in their own forecast, they're kind of relaxed about you know, getting inflation back down to that target, which is, I completely get it. I mean, at the end of the day, I think if you asked any of them, if they could pick the target de novo right now, what would it be? It definitely wouldn't be two. It'd be something closer to three. That'd be my guess. Yeah. Or at least closer to two, five. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, another, you know, another possibility, I I think, I think there's a lot of, it it is, it's good to debate whether there's going to be a recession. That's a helpful debate. But, uh, you know, I think if the, you know, kind of couch this in terms of the labor market, if the if the range of kind of plausible, you know, monthly payroll numbers 
is you know negative a hundred thousand to positive a hundred thousand um you know that and that seems plausible so you know forty thousand net new jobs a month is a soft landing negative forty thousand net new jobs a month is a is a mild recession right this is kind of what we're debating mm-hmm. uh, you know and if you think that the neutral federal funds rate is two point five percent which the fed I think still thinks you know then if you're if you're at three and a half percent, you're an entire point above the neutral rate. You're still restricting mm-hmm. economic activity, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know that that I think could really be affecting uh, investor behavior as well. Hmm. Let me ask you one, one more question, and then we'll move on. Uh, we'll talk about the inflation, the CPI numbers, PPI numbers we got this week, and you know what in the context of what it means for monetary policy, but. The election. So one thought uh, thought I've had is that all else being equal, the Federal Reserve would like not to change policy if they could, the closer we get to the election. And, and I think most forecasts, our forecast is that they don't have enough evidence to start cutting interest rates. It can't be before March, probably more likely, you know, by summertime. They, you know, now you're in the teeth of the election, you know, in November, and I, I think that election is going to be hotly contested, uh, uh, very uh, 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 hard to watch, uh, and a good chance that the Fed is moving policy. Certainly, if they're cutting interest rates, good chance they're going to get caught up in the election and get politicized. Therefore, all else being equal, and I mean, kind of it's in the reaction function, so-called reaction function, what they look at when making policy. It may be one of the last variables they look at, but it's sitting there, you know, in their reaction function. Does that does that resonate with you at all? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a uh, something that's barely being discussed. I um, uh, had to I read a column for Project Syndicate and they asked me to make a 2024 uh, prediction. And and you know, they asked me to do it in two hundred words, and so this was my prediction. I emailed oh, it a few days right. ago. <laughs> but but uh, uh, as far as I as far as I know, you know, people aren't talking about it, um, and uh, I think that's surprising because I do think it's going to be a big, big topic uh, in the coming year. Right. And I don't quite know, you know, what you do if you're the Fed. I mean, on the one hand. You know, you want to preserve your political independence. You don't want to allow the election to affect you at all. Uh, on, uh, uh, but kind of how do you, you know, how do you best preserve your political independence? If you refrain from cutting, then you know you're you're going to be you know accused of refraining from cutting to you know appear not to be helping. If you do cut, you're going to be accused of you know cutting in order to help President Biden. If 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 this were a if this were a kind of more politically normal contest um where the candidates were more conventional politicians, you know, I think it would matter a lot less. But if President Trump is the Republican nominee, which which is I think the most likely mm-hmm. outcome at this point, you know, then you've got this whole other dynamic right, uh, at play. And so I think it's, I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's very difficult. And if president Trump is hammering the fed for, you know, let's say markets are right. And the fed cuts in the first quarter, if president Trump is hammering the fed for cutting, um, does the fed want to show independence by 
doing more cuts than they otherwise would? Mm. Or does the Fed want to show independence by doing fewer cuts than they otherwise would? I mean, you could you could argue it in both directions, which is what makes mm. it so which is what makes it mm. such, such a challenging situation. Well, here's a Machiavellian theory for you. Uh, you know, you're worried about the election next year and you really don't want to get caught up in the politics because the Fed doesn't want to get politicized. I mean, that's the number one priority. I, I do not want to get politicized and because uh, ultimately that would potentially wreck its independence. And that that's a cornerstone of a well-functioning market economy. We we got to preserve that at all costs. So a rate hike here or there, or I mean, a rate cut here or there is almost inconsequential in the context of I got to. I can't get politicized. I can't do that. So here's a Machiavellian theory for you. Do what you just did. Now the market says six rate cuts. So you give them three. You give them two. You give them one. You know, you're not going to get. You may not get caught up in the in the politics. You know that might prevail. You know, and you front load them, right? You front load them. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. you do. You do do early in the year. Anyway, um, I want to come back to the election in the context of policy, fiscal policy. But before we do that, I want to play the game. We're going to play the statistics game. And before I do, we do that, I want to talk about the inflation numbers, because obviously the inflation statistics are critical to what the Fed's doing here. And one reason why they are uh, clearly uh, more uh, relaxed about uh, interest rates and cutting rates and what's happening in, in financial markets. And to that end, Matt, can, maybe I can bring you back in and maybe you can give us a rundown on the CPI. And the other thing, I, you know, we generally don't pay much attention to the PPI, the producer price index, but that was also pretty good that came out this week and has implications for the consumer expenditure deflator. Again, that's the the uh, measure of inflation that the Federal Reserve is using to set policy. So maybe you can give us a rundown on CPI. And if you have any comments on PPI, uh, I'm in the marketplace for that as well. Sure. Sure. Um, so CPI. Wake up. Remember. Wake up, Matt. Come on. Wake up. I know <laughs> yeah, it's tired. Yeah. You're tired over there. The baby's I'm here. Crying. That's uh, come on. Let's go. Courtesy of Starbucks. Um, <laughs> the uh, latest uh, CPI report for November was oh, largely. Did, 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 I forgot. Did we tell everyone that you're a father? We did, right? We did. Was yeah, that, yeah. Was that before the podcast started, or was that during the podcast? That was during. during. Anyway, right? Matt's yeah. a new new father, and so he's a little. He's he's usually three steps ahead of me. Right now, he's only one step ahead of me. So, okay, go ahead, Matt. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, the November consumer uh, price index report came out earlier this week, uh, largely a continuation of what we've seen, which is this this graceful, relatively graceful come down, disinflationary trend uh, in the U.S. throughout 2023. Um, so, in November, prices and and what we're looking at. Uh, average change in prices uh, paid by for uh, paid by consumers for a basket of goods and services that is designed to represent the stuff that they spend their money on. Um, so those prices rose 0.1 percent from in November. Um, that follows flat growth in October, so a mild increase, but but you know certainly not alarming. Um, on a year ago basis, CPI the headline CPI was at 3.1 percent. Uh, that's the lowest since June. Then. You had some weird base effects from the year before. Um, so uh, outside of that, what we're looking 3.1% is, is uh, the lowest since early 2021. Everyone starts getting vaccinated. People are rushing back to the things they didn't do. Labor markets all out of balance. Inflation's on its way up. Uh, now we're on the other side of that. Uh, so major progress. Um, but you would notice that 
headline inflation in November was the same as June, but as we've discussed, Powell, Fed communication, much different. Um, and that's because this is a much different situation than, than annual comparisons drifted up for a little bit, came back down. Now they seem to be you know, pretty firmly on their way down. Uh, the last mile, we'll see, and I'm sure we'll talk more about uh, how much harder that will be. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, good progress. So what's behind the slower growth? Again, in November, as was the case in October, energy prices on the way down negatively contribute to C the CPI. So the energy CPI fell 2.5% in October, 2.3% in November, motor fuel prices. Uh, so prices at the pump, they've, they've fallen meaningfully. Uh, recently, uh, average gallon uh, retail gas prices about $3.25 per gallon, last I checked, and, and that's fallen for 12 consecutive weeks. Uh, we're about halfway done December. We have information about futures contracts, so, so, so where prices are, are headed, and um, that reliably points to another negative contribution to CPI in, in December, uh, probably a milder degree than what we've seen, but, but still uh, subtracting from headline uh, inflation. Food, another big component. Uh, not a ton to say here. The picture hasn't changed. Relatively stable. Can I stop you on the food, though? Can I stop you sure, on the food? Sure. And this gets to, and I want to bring Mike back into the conversation. You know, there's this uh, debate, uh, raging debate as to why people don't think the economy is performing well. I mean, you got sub 4% unemployment for two years. You got lots of jobs. The stock market's at a record high. Debt service is very low. There's a lot of cash sitting in Obviously, high-income households have a lot of cash sitting in their in their bank account because they they saved. Uh, and the standard explanation, the one explanation that kind of uh, sticks with me is, it's it's not the inflation now; it's the fact that prices rose so quickly a year ago, two years ago, and people are still paying a lot more for you know what whatever it is that they're buying now than uh, two three years ago. And in fact, you know, I was teaching a course at Wharton the other day to uh, business school kids. Uh, by the way, uh, I highly recommend uh, doing that because when you do that, you feel like our future is in a really good place. Uh, you know, you you look at all the term the turmoil in the world, and you you get I get really anxious about that. And I go talk to these kids, and I go, "Oh my God, we're we're in good hands. These guys are really smart." Anyway, I'm talking to one of the uh, one of the one of the kids, and I'm saying, uh, how, "How do you feel about the economy?" And he goes, "Not so good." I go, "Well, what's the problem?" I'm paying more for stuff than I was a few years ago. And I go, well, what? He goes, ramen noodles. Really? That's really bugging me. <laughs> it's really bugging me. And I think everybody out there has their ramen noodle, right? It's really bugging them. That's really bugging them. Uh, Mike, what do you think? Is that, is that, how do you explain? Yeah, I, I this, think that's uh, exactly, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think people, I think, I think people care about the level of prices uh, much more than they care about the rate at which prices are growing. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, well, you know, inflation is falling. Why are people still upset? We haven't had deflation. We've just had prices growing at a slower rate than they were growing. And, you know, people aren't tracking the macroeconomic statistics, but they, you know, do, you know, this, you know, the student buys ramen noodles every week and, you know, somebody else goes to, uh, you know, every, you know, every Saturday, you know, takes his, family to lunch at Denny's or whatever and sees that, you know, lunch is 40 bucks when it used to be 32 bucks. And, and, and that's, you know, mm. uh, uh, that's not a good feeling. I mean, I, 
you know, I follow this stuff, you know, pretty closely, obviously. And I remember back when the inflation started a couple of years ago, you know, I, I would take my family to a same restaurant. We go to a lot for lunch on a Saturday and, you know, it was 20 I bet bucks. it wasn't a Denny's. I'm just saying, I bet, I bet <laughs> it wasn't a Denny's. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was a, my, my, uh, my seven-year-old loves IHOP. So we have Oh, to, I love IHOP too. I love yeah, IHOP. So yeah. we have to go, we have to, we have to do that relatively often, <laughs> but you know, it's 20 bucks more than it used to be. And I kind of felt like somebody punched me in, in the face and took a $20 bill out of my wallet and <laughs> that didn't feel good to me. You know, I mean, I really felt it, it felt unjust in a way that, that, that surprised me. I was surprised by my, by my reaction to that. Um, I think something else is happening too. I mean, in the, in the kind of debate, Mark, you reference about, you know, is there a disconnect between consumer sentiment and actual economic performance? Uh, you know, you got to remember, even in even in the worst economy, nine out of 10 workers can find a job. Mm. And so, you know, yeah, for sure. I mean, we have a we have a great labor market. Um, uh, but, you know, that just means that there are two workers who can find a job uh, that otherwise wouldn't have been able to. Whereas these high prices affect everybody. And uh, so if you're those two workers, you know, you, you know, and, and you know that 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 you you may otherwise not have been able to find a job, you're probably really happy. But you know, the other 98 people, uh, the other 98% of of, of 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 people are unhappy about about how expensive everything uh everything is. Um I think there are other explanations uh as well, but you know, those, those kind of strike me as that makes, that makes total sense to me. The people just don't think it's fair. You know, it's un, as you said, unjust. I mean, how could it possibly be the case that I'm paying twice as much for the same thing than I, than I was two, two, three years ago, someone's ripping me off. In fact, uh, the one thing that I know polls really well politically is if you blame the high inflation on greed inflation, that it's the these yeah. greedy corporations because it, it goes right to this. This is unfair and I'm getting ripped off, totally. you know, so yeah. you, you I, mean, know I, that, saw, I saw a poll. I don't know how representative this is of, of, of the kind of general state of polling, but I saw a poll with something like 75 or 80 percent of respondents reacted. Mark, just as you say, yeah, you know, yeah. these greedy corporations, you know, they're not they're not, you know, lowering their prices. And right. that's it's pretty tough to find. These days, to find three quarters or eighty percent of Americans agreeing on anything, agree on yeah. anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, except maybe that the Eagles should win the Super Bowl. I think sure, we, sure, yes. In the Philadelphia, no. in the Philadelphia metropolitan area, I'm sure you yeah, can yeah. find exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Matt, let's go back and finish off the CPI. The one thing I want you to focus on, though, is in, in, if uh, I'm going to ask this as a question because I'm not sure I didn't look at this this month's data, but up till now, it's been the difference between the the, the actual inflation rate and inflation at the Fed's target was the growth in the cost of housing services, shelter costs. And that had that remained stubbornly high, stubbornly persistently high. And that's the gap. If that comes back into something that's more consistent with historical norm, then inflation is going to get back to target. Is that factually still correct based on the data we got for November? And what's what's going on there? Do you have a view on that? And I know Chris might have a view, Marissa may have a view, and Mike might have a view as well. But I'm just just curious. Yeah, if you 
take shelter all the way out, you're at about yeah. one, one and a half percent. Um, oh, okay. But including shelter, I mean, shelter at, at its normal growth rate, kind of pre-pandemic, uh, two yeah. and a half, three percent, right. um, then you're, you're in that ballpark of, of target range. So shelter prices did rise again, 0.4% in November. Uh, and we're up 6.5% relative to a year earlier. So this is, you know, it's trending downward, trending in the right direction. I would say a little bit more slowly than anticipated using you know, kind of the, the oft discussed rent indices that everyone looks at and says, you know, rent growth kind of flattened out. This will, this will kind of, you know, filter its way through, through CPI. That's happening. Um, you know, but six months ago, we thought that shelter CPI would be closer to 6% than it is now at 6.5, but it's trending in the right direction. Okay. Um, so again, that's you think that might be seasonal adjustment issues or just some kind of measurement issues. But you feel like it's going to catch up. It's nothing. Yeah, it's and I, I okay. think our our forecasts. I you know this point looking forward, what are we talking about next year? Shelter mm. prices growing at about four um, okay. percent. So again, that's uh, ever closer to that norm you expect, given the same kind of compositional effects. Now that that leaves CPI you know at, at target in in ballpark or you know as we forecast it. Um, so it is happening, but. Um, that that's okay. mostly grown. Yeah. Marissa, because I've kind of locked you out of the conversation, let me throw throw this question at you. I mean, have you been surprised by the persistence of, of the of the cost, uh, the growth in the cost of, of housing, uh, shelter costs? And, and uh, what's your, do you have a sense of what's going on there? Just as any theories? Yeah, because I think if we went back a year or earlier this year, we were thinking that by this time in the year, we would see a much more significant deceleration in in, in rents, right? Um, we thought it would take maybe nine months, 12 months, again, to, to see that. And it's much more persistent. And I would say back to your question to Michael about you know, why do people feel so bad about the economy when the economy is good? I think food is one thing. I think mm -hmm. the cost of housing is the yeah. other big thing. Yeah. I mean, right. certainly not everyone's out there trying to buy a home, but if you're not, then you're renting. You've seen, you know, you saw rents shoot up quite a lot during the pandemic. Maybe now they're stabilizing, but again, I think people are more focused on the level of price that they're paying than the change in that price. And the home buying market, I mean, forget it, right? We've talked about this many times on the podcast, uh, particularly for a first-time buyer, it's it's almost impossible in parts of the country. So I think that's this other sense of it's unfair, right? It's unfair. I, I, this is a basic sort of good, sort of the cornerstone of the American dream. And you know, you're making it financially as your ability to purchase a home. So I think this is goes to how people are feeling. And I think it's discouraging that it's not coming down faster too. Yeah, you make a great point. In fact, I saw a morning consult uh, and I should thank them for sending me the the survey results uh, a little bit early. But if you look at, you know, what's bugging people when, uh, uh, when it comes to prices across age group, if you're in your late 30s and early 40s, this is the number one thing. Uh, that just, makes sense. Yeah. I, yeah. Sure. I mean, if, as you look at older age groups, housing falls to the bottom. The one thing that's constant is food. Food is kind of mm -hmm. number one or two all the way across the board. But housing is for you know younger people, obviously, top top of mind. Mike, did you want to weigh in? I saw you shaking your head there on the growth and cost of housing services. Oh, yeah. You've you been surprised, too, about this I've, persistence of that? 
Yeah, I I was shaking my head at a few points. I've been I I've been uh, quite surprised. Um, mm -hmm. and and you know my expectation is the same as 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 Marissa's. I thought that the you know kind of looking at the real time rent indices, trying to figure out how that would how the marginal rent you know would map into the average. The average, of course, is what shows up in the in the CPI. You know, I've been surprised kind of month after month for the last several months that that, that we haven't seen more progress. Um, the second reason I was nodding my head is I was talking to a public opinion expert uh, uh, who told me that there's um, that if you kind of look into the polling data of young people, uh, you know, who are renters under under age 35, let's say that there's this kind of rule of thumb that you should be spending less than a third of your income on rent. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, hadn't thought about that in years, but that was something that when I first came out of college and got a job, that's what, you know, mm -hmm. people, that's the advice I got too. And that is harder and harder and harder, especially in big cities where more and more young people are, are, are living than they, than, uh, than, than uh, had been uh, true in the past. And that, and that, that, you know, that may be a under discussed, aspect of uh what's driving consumer sentiment mm -hmm. is this kind of threshold you know rent to income uh ratio for younger people and then and then the third reason i was i was i was not in my head is 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 you know that that it's just harder to buy your first house for a lot of people and that seems to be a, a big a big problem well i didn't realize you were nodding your head three times there yeah it's, it's yeah, yeah one big Head nod. So every there was there, 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 there was not a word I disagreed with. I was feeling great. That was good. That was good. Hey Matt, real quick because I want to go to the game. Uh, is PPI and what PPI and CPI imply for the consumer expenditure deflator? Do you have a sense of because again, that's what the Fed is predominantly focused focused on in setting policy. Anything on the PPI and the and the uh, what it means for PCE? Uh, so bodes well for PC being a little bit lower that the PPI for November came in flat expectations. We were a little bit pessimistic. We thought we'd see a modest decline, but but generally there was the expectation that the PPI would kick up. It was flat. Um, that follows a 4.4% reduction in October. Uh, those things as we await uh, uh, later in December, the PCE data, the, the core PCE, the Fed's preferred uh, inflationary measure, um, are 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 a good thing. We should expect to see uh, it's a, a negative small effect. Increase. Yeah, a smaller should increase. I, early forecast now, I think, are are point one percent for the uh, core PC. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's um, good. Okay, good, good. Let's play the game, uh, the stats game. And uh, as the listeners know, that uh, we all put forward a statistic. Uh, the rest of us tried to figure that out through questions, uh, clues, deductive reasoning. The best stat is one that is uh, not so uh, easy. We get it uh, quickly. One that's not so hard, we never get it. And if it's apropos to the topic at hand, uh, all the better. Uh, Marissa, you want to go first, uh, as tradition has it? Sure. Okay. My statistic is 19.4%. Okay. Um, it came out this week. Mm -hmm. Government statistic. And, and the Fed is part of the government, just saying. It's not from the Fed or the government. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Or> the government. <laughs> okay. Oh, it, it, it's, I'm, I didn't even listen to the answer. It, it is or it isn't part of the government? It is not. It is not a government not. statistic. No. Okay. Okay. So it's from a trade group? Yeah. Okay. 
uh, NFIB came out. Is it from NFIB, National no. Federation of Independent? No, not the no. NFIB. Is it from the Mortgage Bankers Association? Is it a housing statistic? Yes, it is. Oh, so it's from the NBA. Yep. Okay, so it's from their weekly mortgage applications. Application. Mm -hmm. That's oh. The oh, okay. Purchase apps were up nineteen point four percent in the week. No, the other one, refi. Refi. App. Refi. refi, refi apps. <laughs> oh, refi. You guys really okay. drilled that down. Okay, very good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that, that's I think game. I get the cowbell there. I just say. Hold so. it. Wait. You get the cowbell? You said purchase. I said refi. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I led you down the golden path. And, all right. Go, go ahead. All right. Okay. So, okay. Interesting. Interesting you picked that. Why? Well, I mean, this kind of, so my original statistic was going to be about the PPI, but, you know, we blew that because oh, that, that would have been too easy. Yeah. yeah um, but this kind of goes to like the Fed maybe not helping the situation here, right? Like- so now mortgage rates are down to 6.8. That feels good. 6.8. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they've been coming in. We obviously saw a huge rally in the bond market yesterday. So they're falling even further. So this is still um, low, right? I mean, if you look at the whole history of, of mortgage activity, we're still very, very low in the grand scheme of things, given, given the level of rates. Um, but people are reacting already to lower mortgage rates. I mean, even the purchase um, applications index was up. I mean, this is a volatile series. It's weekly. It had fallen in the, in the previous week, but people are refinancing <laughs> with rates at 6.8%, probably just because they have so much equity to withdraw, right? To work with just given house prices over the past couple of years. I mean, I don't know that the Fed wants to be necessarily juicing housing market activity right now. So I'm just trying to tie this back to our original conversation about the Fed potentially uh, loosening financial conditions at a time where it probably doesn't want to do that as much as it's doing it. Chris, what do you think of what Marissa just said? You know, housing is always this tough one, right? The problem is not the, the demand side, it's the supply side, right? So the Fed actions, yeah, you're right. Like They might be contributing to even more demand, if you will, but the demand is already there. I, I don't know that that should be their uh, guiding post here, right? I think that there's going to be consequences on the housing market, but I don't know that that, that they should be adjusting their policy just to keep the housing market tighter or to. Um, I agree. Uh, I agree that that's not their, that shouldn't be their primary objective for sure, but it has saying there's fallout. Yeah. yeah, it has big implications. And given the discussion we just had about housing, you know, how important it is to the economy, to people's perception of the economy, to people's feelings about the economy, to the share of, of GDP that, you know, housing makes up. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's one to watch. I find yes, this conversation it's supply, fascinating. but this is also the refi index, right? I, I I find this really fascinating. I mean, it wasn't but a few weeks ago we we're so worried about recession. You get this news, you go, "This is great. We need we need to support." Them. Now you're sitting here saying, "Oh, I know. We're, we might be juicing up the economy again. This is not good." <laughs> that's that's really. I know it's it's bizarre. I think this. I think I agree with Michael. Like. I'm very worried about this. 
I'm very really? worried that they've boxed themselves into a corner. Yeah. And they are committing, although, you know, they're not committed, right? But essentially by broadcasting this, they're committing to a course of action that the market is taking as gospel. And mm. like what happens if in a couple months we get bad data on either the labor market side or um, the inflations, what if, what if inflation reaccelerates and then they feel like, no, well, now what do we do? Because we told people we were going to cut rates three times, but now we really don't want to cut rates. I just think they're in a, they're in a bad hmm. situation right now. Mike, you agree with all this, huh? You, I do. I think, I think yeah. they're in a bad situation. I think, I think that yeah. there is a real risk of a reacceleration. Uh, we saw a reacceleration in the third quarter. This isn't, this isn't just fiction. We saw it happen a few months ago. And, you know, again, uh, you know, ending the year with a 25% increase in equity values and, uh, you know, 10-year treasury note in the high threes or low fours is a way to get a reacceleration. You guys are worry words. Gee, Louise. I mean, <laughs> holy cow. Uh, you have to worry about something, Mark. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Jeez, Louise. Uh, hey, hey uh, Chris, you want to go next? Uh, sure. Uh, what was it? Uh, 2.08%. That's pretty precise. 2.08. Is it year over a year uh, PPI? No. Is it government statistic? It is not. It's a market. It's a what statistic? It is a market statistic. Oh, I thought so. So it's it's an is it an interest rate? It is an interest rate, yes. It's a low interest rate. Uh, what's a 2.0? Or maybe a difference in interest rates. Oh, it's the spread between something and something? It's the difference, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to make it a little you know, more scientific. Uh, it's it's not the spread. Oh, is it the spread the between the ten-year and the mortgage rate? No, no, no that's it's higher. The funds rate is five and a half, and the ten-year is below four. That's not it. It's not the spread between the funds rate and the ten-year. No, it's not two-year, ten-year, three-month, no. three-month. No, what's our topic year? today? Is, that, is it a yield curve? Is it a measure of the yield curve? Nope. No. Okay. Is it a, a credit spread? No, it's related to- Oh, is it the difference between the Fed funds rate and the- No. No, no, he's, no, no. more fundamental. Just It's related to our inflation well, discussion. Oh, I know. It's inflation expectation. It's the five-year- Thank you. You Sorry, five that year, was a great- Five-year forward. Yeah, five, was it five-year, five-year forward? 2.08? It's the five-year break-even. Oh, five-year break-even. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The wow. Five -year I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Okay, wow. so why'd you pick that? Why'd you pick the break-even? Uh, this is a uh, a measure of uh, investor expectations of inflation, average expectations for inflation over the next five years. It's the difference between these um, the rate on a five-year treasury bond and the five-year treasury in inflation-protected uh, bond, or the TIPS uh, security. So this implies a 2.08 uh, inflation rate, right? Very low. It's come in, right? Mm -hmm. So the expectations aspect of this seems to be off the table, at least for now. Yep. Very good. Very good. Hey, Mike, did you want to play or you want to take a pass? I'd be happy to play. Okay. Fire right. away. 24.8. 24.8. A stat that came out this week? Uh, it is a stat that came out um, last week. 
Okay. Okay. Uh, units. Is there a percentage? 24.8%. 24.8%. This is obscure. It's an obscure one. Okay. Is it a government statistic? It is. Is it related to the labor market? It is. So is it the jobs, something in the jobs report? Uh, It is. Oh, okay. On the household side, household survey. It is. Okay. Is it a percentage increase? Nope. A share. It's a, it's a share. It's like a demographic. Uh, right. Okay. 24.8%. Uh, <laughs> um, the labor force participation rate of teenagers? Uh, no, but close. Oh. Oh, bl- bl- African-American yeah. teenagers. Uh, no, not teenagers. Seniors? No, the over, over 65. Or oh, over, over oh. 65. No. Is it, it's a participation rate though. It is. And is it uh, African-American? Black? Uh, no, but they are included. They're included. It's not only okay. for African-American. Ooh. Uh, uh, in the, it, 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 it's by age, some, some age cohort. 16, 16 plus. Six, oh, 16 oh. plus. Okay. Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, what, what could that be? Uh, gender, ethnicity. Are we going to kick ourselves when you tell us? Probably not. It's pretty obscure, but you might. Is it uh, participation rates of Native Americans? No. No. <laughs> this, uh, <laughs> That's not published. Something with uh, multiple People who live jobs. in Guam. People who want. No, no, it's the participation rate for people with a disability. Oh, and, uh, it is up by a rough cal- rough rough calculation about twenty uh, percent relative to where it was before the pandemic. Wow, um, and I think uh, you know that's a really important thing for yep. the welfare of sure. society for sure. Really important development. Also, maybe some interesting economic content there. Uh, is it reflective of uh, uh, labor demand, labor supply imbalance, where businesses are, are willing to hire workers that they otherwise uh, wouldn't? Is it reflective of a technological change where there's more work from home and it's easier for mm-hmm. uh, workers with disabilities to, to participate in the workforce than it used to be because work from home is, is, more, is more prevalent? Um, and you know, again, it speaks to uh, it speaks to I think the the benefits to society of having a really tight labor market. Tight labor market, yeah, kind of a high intensity labor market. Yeah, get everyone involved. Yeah, that's a great. That was a great statistic. Very good. Hey, Matt, do you have a good one? I hope it's, it's got to be good because I, I know I you really so. think about this. Is it good? Uh, yeah, I think it's good. Uh, okay, far away. We'll do one uh, more then because we're running out of time. But we'll do one okay. more. Go ahead. Price of diapers. No. <laughs> uh, that's good. Right. Um, that would be quick. Zero point four percent. Statistic that came out this week. Yes. Inflation. Government statistic. Government statistic. Um, inflation. No. No. Not related no. to inflation at all. Indirectly, but uh, okay. uh, yeah, not the main focus. Okay. Is a percent zero? You said zero point four percent increase. Yes, increase. Yes. Um. Okay. Uh, is it an obscure statistic? No. 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 Okay. Uh, from a report that has not been discussed on this podcast yet. 
ever like ever just <laughs> just this this particular podcast this <laughs> <Okay>. one uh, <laughs> that would be that would be really obscure yeah, I you guys like, have wow. never heard of this report <laughs> the government releases at uh, midnight <laughs> retail sales oh, oh, okay that's it yeah yeah Is yes the co- uh, core retail sales like x auto x gas very close the x uh, oh it's control x yeah. auto x gas x building material Yes. Yeah. Control retail sales. So yeah, excluding gas, building materials, restaurants, non-auto retail sales. Um, That's that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, if you say yesterday the Fed announces or projects 75 basis points uh, in rate reductions in 2024, post, you know, meeting Jerome Powell saying he's reminding everybody about the other mandate that we're really focused about employment just seems like Wow, something there must be this really big dark cloud was was kind of my takeaway that that nobody else sees. And then you get data uh, pretty consistent with what we've had, which is really strong consumption. It's an economy that I don't think needed a jolt of exuberance, which is what happened yesterday. Um, So I find it interesting. Um, I don't know how pretty good point four. you what uh, analyze it. It's four and a half to five. I'm, you know, Feels right. If you divide by inflation, it's still two. Yeah. That's what you want, right? No. Core retail, a little closer to it looks looks like an echo of or a continuation of uh, the third quarter, which was what point set point seven, right? Point eight in in July and September. Uh, kind of these strong figures. Um, so maybe not through the roof, but certainly not an economy that's uh, teetering on the brink and needs you know financial conditions to, to loosen. Is, <laughs> Mike, you come on the podcast and you're like messing with people's minds. Like now they're all worried about we're growing too fast. Come on, please. I, yeah. it's like, Mark, you, know, you wanted some upside ninja. Risk. You know, you got, you got into their minds. Yeah, he's persuasive. I've got I got a, a Mike Strain hat on. I'm not allowing you in. <laughs> That's geez Louise. Uh, okay. All right. Hey, we're running out of time, but I do want to uh, end the conversation with the election. As you said, Mike, this is a, I think people aren't paying enough attention here in two respects. And I want to get your reaction to both. First, how worried should we be about this election being close and contested and that ending up in a very uncomfortable place in terms of, you know, what's going on socially, politically, social unrest, that kind of thing. Should we, this is one of those things that keeps me up. I mean, how worried should we be about that? Do you think that's a real issue? Yeah, I think it depends a lot on on who the uh, nominee is. Um, and so, you know, my kind of current view is that if uh, Governor Haley pulls it off, then it's not going to be that close and she'd right. you know, likely win pretty decisively. Um, but I think if President Trump is the nominee, uh, you know, people come home to their respective parties. We're kind of a 50-50 nation. There are, I don't know, a dozen counties where uh, the election will be decided. Uh, the amount of resources that will be spent in those 10 or 12 counties is astronomical. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, it'll be it'll be close and that'll be, you know, that'll be, that'll be bad for basic social stability. I'm, I, I, uh, I think that's a real possibility. Yeah. I mean, I, there's so many different scenarios here, but I mean, should we, do you think it would be prudent for uh, 
uh, businesses, financial institutions, governments to be considering scenarios where things do go in a kind of a dark place? I mean, in terms of social unrest and what that might mean for financial markets and the economy is that, or is it so far out on the tail that that's not worth even considering or should, is it something that should be, people should be thinking about when they do their planning for 2024? Um, I would, I would be thinking about it. Yeah. You would be thinking about it. Yeah. Okay. For sure. All right. Yeah. We have a, an election model where we just dusted it off. We're, we're, um, we do it at the electoral college level. Uh, and, you make a wonderful point that I think people that's really important to reemphasize the president of the United States is determined by a few states and actually just a few counties in a few states. And in many cases, it's not even whether the uh, Republican county goes Republican or Democrat goes Democrat. It's really the turnout in that county. How many like if I you know, everyone expects Philadelphia County to go Democrat, but how, how, what's the turnout in Philadelphia is what really matters. So totally. uh, I think this, this is going to be, you know, just a incredibly uh, close, uh, close race. Here's the other thing I want to, to, to bring up and that is policy. Okay. So, uh, one, uh, on the other side of the election, whoever wins, they're going to be faced with some, uh, some having to make some big decisions and choices pretty quickly, right? I mean, we've got the debt limit that's going to come due again. That has to be increased about that time. You've got the Trump tax cuts. Remember all those tax cuts back uh, in uh, 2018? Uh, they, for for uh, uh, individuals, they expire uh, at the end of 2025. So something's got to be done about that, uh, some decision around that. And I believe there's also a lot of tax subsidy for Obamacare or health subsidies that are coming due that needs to be thought about and, and, and done. And I'm sure I'm missing other things that have to be done, but those those are pretty big things. How do you think this, this and all of this in the context of we've got a very large deficit that, that isn't going to come in, even with an economy that's operating at full employment, you know, 3.7% unemployment rate. And if we don't change policy, if you look at CBO, Congressional Budget Office forecast, something's going to break in the not too distant future. I mean, because you know our debt load is going to continue to rise. How do you process all that? What what what's your thinking around that, and how this may all play out? Well, this is not uh, a good place for optimism. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think it's uh, it's very troubling. I think one of the kind of big uh, misnomers in conventional wisdom is that. Uh, there's a lot of disagreement between the parties on this issue. Uh, you know, both President Trump and President Biden are crystal clear on not wanting to cut spending on Medicare and Social Security. Those are the two; uh, those programs are the two biggest drivers of the of the structural deficit and the long term fiscal imbalance. Uh, both President Trump and President Biden are crystal clear that they do not want to raise taxes one penny on the bottom 98% of households. So the fight is over what to do with the top 2% and there's just not enough revenue there to you know, make a material difference to the long-term uh, uh, debt outlook. Um, I don't think there's gonna be a big fight over what to do with the expiring uh, household provisions in the uh, TCJA and the Trump tax cuts. I think mm -hmm. that's going to I think allowing those provisions to expire on the bottom 98 percent of households will be interpreted as a tax increase on the bottom 98 percent of households. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. you'll see President Biden wanting to extend those uh, cuts 
if President Trump wins, he'll want to extend those cuts. Uh, and so, you know, I think uh, if Governor Haley ends up getting elected president, you know, she'll likely be serious about at least attempting to address our uh, mm -hmm. fiscal imbalance. But I think if we see President Trump or President Biden uh, winning the election, then they have not left themselves much room to maneuver. And I expect to see the can kick down the road even further. Right. Well, I guess that's going to be certainly not my problem. Um, might might be these guys. It might be Matt. Definitely Matt's problem for sure. <laughs> I mean, Matt's problem. Uh, but that's a problem. That is a problem. I mean, it's my yeah, my hope, and I'll just throw it out because I, as you can tell, I'm glass half full. You know, my hope is. <laughs> And, is that right? here, it's, pretty, it's pretty hard to do this, but I'm going to try, <laughs> you know, uh, that I don't think lawmakers, whomever the lawmakers are, uh, are going to be able to make the hard choices necessary to put our fiscal situation in, in a more sustainable place without pressure. And I do think that pressure will likely come from the bond market. And we've got a whiff of that, uh, just a few months ago when long-term interest rates jumped, you know, for lots of different reasons, but we got, got the 5% 10 year treasury yield in part, because I think there was a lot of bond issuance that we had large, we have a, a very large deficit, surprisingly large deficit this year. We had a lot of issuance because of the debt limit that stopped issuance. And then all of a sudden they turned on the spigot and there was a lot of bonds issued. Uh, and then it kind of uh, shown a light on the, this long-term fiscal issue that we have. Of course, the rating agencies, uh, either downgraded or they changed their uh, position on uh, stable versus negative uh, rating. Uh, and so I, I do think we got a whiff of this, but going forward at some point, it feels like rates are going to rise and that those bond market vigilantes that we used to talk about in the nineties, when the last time we had, you know, a very serious fiscal problem when interest expense, the government's interest expense was rising to very high levels of GDP and, and overall revenue, um, that that will be the catalyst. That at that point, lawmakers have no choice. And it also, they almost need it because they, it's very hard for lawmakers to convince the electorate we got to do something. If, well, why do we have to do something? You know, the, the interest rates are low, everything's fine, you know, the unemployment's low. Why do we have to do something here? Uh, so it will take that. And but once that happens, once rates start to rise, once a lawmaker can say, look, we're spending more on interest expense than we are in the nation's defense. We're 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 cutting a check that's uh, greater to the Chinese to Chinese investors than we are on defending our country. That's when the light bulb goes on and we say, oh, OK, this makes no sense. We got to do something. And that's when we'll do something. So. Am I just smoking marijuana? What you know? What do you think? No, I think. I, I mean, I think. Uh, I think an unsustainable situation can't be sustained. Um, uh, uh, okay. and, and so I don't. You know, I don't. I don't think the situation will be sustained indefinitely. I think it certainly could. Come, the pressure certainly could come from the bond market. Another source of pressure are the kind of statutory requirements of uh, benefit adjustments when trust funds run out. So. Uh, uh, in the you know, relatively near future, the Social Security Trust Fund will be exhausted. That will require a massive immediate cut in Social Security benefits. 
um, that will force political action. Uh, that cut likely won't happen. I mean, it certainly won't happen to the degree it is required by law. And so Congress will have to pass a law that uh, finds a new source of revenue to fund benefits at you know, likely a, a little bit lower level, but 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 not at, at the level required by current law. And in the process of doing that, that will create some political space to introduce longer term uh, reforms. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, whether or not whether or not the forcing event comes from the bond market, whether or not the forcing event comes from, uh, you know, trust fund exhaustion in in Social mm. Security or, or or in certain parts of Medicare, I think mm. I think there are there are uh, forcing events um, uh, that will happen and and you know will uh, then uh, deal with this problem. The tragedy, of course, is that if we dealt with this problem ten years ago, yeah. It would have been we would have found a much better solution. And if we dealt with the problem today, we would find a much better solution. So what we end up doing will be uh, very much suboptimal. But, you know, it will be better than, uh, you know, uh, ruining the nation's finances and, and you know, destroying the <laughs> destroying the global financial system. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay, let's end this way uh, real, very quickly. We haven't done this in a while, but I want to get you on the record. Um, the probability of recession starting at some point in 2024. Uh, Chris, let me begin with you. What's your probability? Uh, 33%. Ooh, 33. So that's, uh, in, that's down from where that's you were. That's down. I was at 40. Down. Down at 40. Uh, Matt, what's your probability of recession in 2024? A little lower. Say 25%. 25? Okay. Marissa? I'm still at 20. 20. Okay. Relative optimist. Mike? 60. Ooh. Wow. Really? Holy cow. So, You're not we'll just see. saying that. Okay. I'm not just 60. saying it. Yeah, okay. I'm not just saying yeah. it. Okay. Is that worth... What do you think? What's the catalyst for that? Do you think? Anything uh, in particular? Um, I... Uh, uh, I see a lot of kind of weakness under the surface. You know, the top line numbers look good. Mm. You look a little bit below that. Um, and I see I see some kind of troubling signs, uh, um, both in the labor market uh, and for consumer spending and also for business investment for all three. Um, I, uh, reason number two, you know, things are a little too quiet. There's got to be a banana peel on the sidewalk somewhere. It's been, it's been a while since we've slipped on a banana peel. Uh, you know, reason number three, <laughs> um, reason number three, uh, you know, I think that there I is know, a, I know <laughs> there's a, there's a risk. I think there, I think there's a risk of a energy price shock in 24. Um, uh, there are, you know, I think, I think President Putin would like for that to happen, um, and and you know that's uh, 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 that's an additional an additional risk. Uh, uh, you know, so just kind of, and then and then you know, and then I think my fourth reason yep. is general angst. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a there's a real psychological component to this, and. Uh, the kind of soft landing narratives ignore that type of recessionary psychology that I think is pretty important. 
Yep. Somehow we got to get the banana peel into the title of this podcast. The, <laughs> the banana peel uh, yeah. yeah. I like that. I like that. Well, you, Mark. Th- hey, Mike, thanks. Well, what's that, Chris? What's, what's your, your uh, what's your probability? Yeah. Oh, that's right. I didn't tell you. Yeah, Negative 25%. 10. I'm at, <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I'm at 25. I think, you know, the unconditional probability, I know lots of different ways of measuring. Simply, simple measurement, 15% unconditional probability, I'd say 25 so elevated. I, I, I'm wary. I, I'm wary of the banana peel. Uh, you know, I think that's a re- and sentiment is fragile. So, and at the end of the day, recession is a psychological event. And you know, I don't think it takes much of a fall to undermine that sentiment. And so, I, I wouldn't dismiss it. Um, I, I do think that that's a reasonable risk. So, uh, but Mike, hey, Mike, thanks so much for ha- coming on. Really appreciate it. Uh, that was yes, a wonderful thanks conversation. For having me. We covered a lot oh. of ground. I really, uh, yeah. Really appreciate that. Always and, a terrific uh, conversation. And uh, uh, hope hope to have you back. Um, maybe a year from now we'll get you back. Yes, for sure. Love to come back anytime. Yeah. And uh, you know, uh, again, you've won the battle. We'll see. We'll see who wins the war. <laughs> Write this down, everybody. Write it down. <laughs> Write it down. All right. I love a competition. I, I've I've <laughs> lost my fair share of bets to Mike. Though, yeah. there, so uh, he, he's a damn good forecaster so um all right with that we're gonna uh dear listener we're gonna call this a podcast take care now